You're listening to Strictly Business Podcast with Lindsay Williams. I received a piece of work from the desk of Michael Power, who's an investment strategist at 91 in Cape Town, and he says the following. It can only come from Michael Power. It says, why the Bangladeshi Taka is now the South African RAND's most important cross rate, and a cross rate is, of course, to do with foreign exchange. It goes on from there. In understanding more deeply why South Africa finds itself in its current crisis, we need to revisit the most consequential period in recent world economic history. With me now is Michael Power. Michael, first of all, what prompted you to write these pieces, three of which, there's three parts of them, let me explain that, and they've already been published in the excellent Daily Maverick. But what was the background to these pieces, first of all? Uh, the uh, civil unrest in, in KwaZulu-Natal and Gauteng, um, I just think that they are part of a deeper problem that uh, exists in South Africa. While there may have been proximate issues and aggravations that actually uh, triggered them, uh, the deeper issue is that uh, we have 40% unemployment and 70% youth unemployment in South Africa. Okay, so then you started delving deeper into that. I mean, it was a, a, a subject that was was covered very, very comprehensively throughout the South African media. But you went you went a bit deeper, and as always, thought laterally about it. Yeah, I think the most important question that South Africa needs to ask of itself is where do they fit into the global economy, and that global economy needs to be defined not just in the context of the West. Um, and in that regard, you know, I think that some people have said, uh, you know, South Africa is, is, is a cheap Europe. It may be, but as you will find out in the, in the discussions you and I are going to have, it's an expensive Asia. And so we need to understand where we fit in. And you, you mentioned that the, the consequential period was pretty much the late eighties, early nineties. And of course, our attention here in South Africa was very much focused, focused inwardly. And we didn't actually see particularly that the Berlin Wall had fallen, that, uh, yeah, Russia moved on to being some sort of democracy that um, Modi, uh, Modi, that uh, the India opened up uh, as a result of um, some big reforms. And uh, and then, of course, uh, China did its thing. Um, and during that six year period, um, the world changed uh, and we are still living and, and working out what the consequences of that are. You set out your stall before you actually launch into your analysis by saying, what is this essay trying to achieve? And it's, in fact, three essays in three parts, well, actually four parts, but condensed into three articles in the Daily Maverick and three podcasts with me. What is this essay trying to achieve? It's trying to get the debate in South Africa going properly. Uh, the debate with regards to what's wrong with South Africa and what should we do with it is sterile um, to the point of ossification. Uh, and we need to understand exactly what is wrong with South Africa in order to come up with uh, a, a proposal or a set of proposals, because it will be more than one, uh, to do about that problem. I mean, do understand that uh, you know, 70 percent youth unemployment, 40 percent unemployment generally at the depth of the Great Depression in the United States, unemployment there reached 25% and in the UK reached 15%. And as a result of that, Keynes tore up the economics textbook and, and started again. We've got almost twice that sort of level of, uh, of unemployment that the US had and uh, amongst our youth, you know, almost three times. That is something which demands we really think deeply about what the problem is and how we can uh, uh, come up with some sort of proposal to solve it. 
Okay, part one is understanding the changed economic context of South Africa in the new Asia-centric world arising. What you're saying is probably we must revisit our relationship with what you describe as the new Asia and embrace it. And indeed revisit our relationship and our fascination uh, with the old world, uh, which is broadly speaking the West. Absolutely. You say not just re-understanding South Africa in, in a new geo-economic framework, but in a, in a new intellectual one too. You're going to have to explain that to me because you say Keynes died in 1946 just after World War II ended, but his ideas lived on to become the dominant economic paradigm with variations throughout the West. Now, are you saying that those Keynesian ideas are not debunked, but now uh, have to be pushed aside with a new sort of paradigm well, of ideas. For, for newcomers to arrive on the scene, they decided um, that actually adopting the Keynesian approach um, was probably the wrong way to get ahead. Um, and just to be specific, uh, Keynesian religion was aggregate demand management. So uh, his uh, great insight in the 1930s was that there was a shortage of demand, and if necessary, government needed to prime the pump in order to make up that shortage through fiscal spending um, and where, where it could uh, assisting with, with monetary policy. Um, and as a result, you would then uh, boost that demand and, and full employment would return. That has been the dominant paradigm which the West, um, though I do make some uh, qualifications for Germany and Japan, um, has essentially followed since uh, 1946. Okay, you go on about the Keynesian story for quite a while in the last part of your, your first piece. But I'm trying to phrase this question as cleverly, both cleverly and simply as I can. Do we have to abandon the ideas of the West, which South Africa has been linked to for so long, and start shifting towards the, the new Asia? Or do we combine the two? We can take bits and pieces from both, so long as they work for South Africa. I would actually argue that we, we neither have to, as it were, abandon the West uh, nor embrace the East. We have to just understand ourselves and fit ourselves in to um, the environment, both East and West, uh, in such a way as we can actually start to generate uh, jobs and indeed the associated uh, phenomenon of GDP growth. We do have to have our own identity as well. We're talking about East, we glibly talk about East and West, uh, but we're South and South Africa surely established its own identity and as you quite rightly say, take the benefits from both of the, the other two compass points. Couldn't agree more. And uh, when people at first hear me talk on this subject, they immediately assume that I want to somehow embrace everything that China has done. Yes. And it couldn't be further from the truth. For instance, um, I don't believe that uh, capital controls would actually work for South Africa in terms of coming up with uh, a solution to our problem. Uh, and in fact, actually, I think that uh, capital controls or further relaxation of them might actually be an important part of the solution. Um, but uh, so I, I do recognize that it's not a question of wholesale embracing of, of successful policies that are now being carried out in Bangladesh or Vietnam or before that in China. Why did you mention the Bangladesh currency, by the way? Could you explain that to me? Yes, I, I really wanted to get people to uh, sort of shock people, say, what? Yes, exactly. How earth could you, uh, how, how, why do you want to compare us to the Bangladeshi taka? The reason why is that Bangladesh has actually done rather well in the last 10 years. I think in GDP per capita terms, 
Um, it basically, uh, at the 1945-46, at the time when Pakistan, India, uh, 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 were set up, um, uh, they had, they were the weakest economic bit of the, uh, of the Indian subcontinent, even including Sri Lanka at that time. Today, um, they have now overtaken India in terms of GDP per capita. Um, and, uh, recently, uh, when Sri Lanka had a little bit of a, an exchange uh, issue, a capital crisis. Uh, it was Bangladesh that lent them uh, a couple of hundred million dollars in order to see them through it. So um, having once been really the laggard, uh, they've now become, in many respects, the leading example of what to do. Um, and they've done it through uh, that age-old uh, solution, which is they basically developed their textile sector, textiles for exports. Yeah. Um, and that is driving the Bangladeshi story. That's not to say that they're going to end up doing nothing else but textiles forever and ever, amen, they will no doubt graduate to other things in due course. But for now, um, it's all about textiles. Um, and this has generated a huge amount of jobs uh, in uh, urban and to some extent semi-urban areas. Um, and what has gone hap- what has happened with it is that there's been you know, good GDP growth. Um, and we have seen uh, you know, Bangladesh really start to, uh, it's now even starting to, to talk about the possibility that it might even join ASEAN. It's so interesting that you talk about Bangladesh and textiles because Bangladesh has had a good look at itself probably and say, well, we've got a population, we've got relatively cheap labour and this cheap labour force is very good at what it does, i.e. making textiles and making clothes and exporting it to, to richer countries. So they've identified what they're good at. What I have a problem with with South Africa is that we don't seem to be able to identify what we're good at and concentrate on it. And it's been a constant source of frustration for me. That's right, but there's got to be a rider to what you've just said. We've got to be good at something and then be economically relevant and competitive in a global context. We can't just say, oh, we're good at playing cricket. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's not going to actually um, be enough uh, to drive us uh, you know, uh, for the, the entire economy. We have to come up with, as interestingly, in our midst, one little country, namely Lesotho, is trying to do rather well at the moment. Um, and... Yeah, they basically are going down the textiles route as well, um, though driven by inward investment from Taiwan and China. Uh, and it's being exported principally to the United States because Lesotho uh, is a member of AGOA, the American or African Growth and Opportunities Act, which uh, Bush Jr. set up. South Africa doesn't qualify because our GDP per capita is too high. But they get most of the products that they make in Lesotho uh, into the United States uh, without quota or tariff. Um, and, and so they have found a way that works for them. And that's the point that I'm making is that we actually need to sit down and say, so what works for us? Exactly. And the fact of the matter is, is that the, the wage rates that are unemployed and underemployed uh, are asking. And here I'm going to be provocative, say, and asking in Remnimbi, or if you really want to go that far, Bangladeshi Tucker, are just too high to compete with their equivalent who's doing the same sort of job in China or Bangladesh. Okay, we've got to work out what we're good at. And obviously commodities uh, we're we're good at because we've been blessed with the stuff in fistfuls underneath the ground. But, I mean, that's that's a cyclical business, which has been so dramatic. You know, I don't want to go into too much because I don't address it in this thing, but we're not that good at commodities. If you look at, you know, what is the commodity exports per person of Australia or Chile, it's many multiples 
of our commodity exports per person. You know, we've got 60 million people. Australia's got 25. Chile's got 20. Um, you know, they do uh, a lot of commodities for their 25 and 20 million people. We do an okay amount of commodities for our 60 million people. So we need to do something else. Yeah, we do. And do you explore, as we conclude this first podcast, do you explore in parts two and three, parts two, three and four, but three podcasts, do you explore the solution or do you just put out what many people will see as a, a provocative essay? I deliberately ask in section four, it's really entirely in section four, what I call pointed questions. Uh, and those pointed questions, uh, if you follow the logic of the, of the first three parts, pretty much answer themselves and suggest what it is that South Africa has to do. Um, so, yes, I do suggest solutions. I mean, I'll just give you for an example yes. one now. You know, the, 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 you know, we need to look at export processing zones in a really proper way, not in a almost amateur way as we've been doing so. But here's another way of doing it. Uh, in Uruguay, they have a services export processing zone called the Zona America. And it's incredibly successful. It's just, just literally outside of Montevideo, right by the airport. Um, and it's really very, very successful. And they export. They're not allowed to, to do business inside Uruguay, but they're allowed to do business anywhere in Latin America. Um, and there are all sorts of businesses of all variety of services based there. That's something we could think about doing with the context of, uh, of Africa being, uh, you know, the area that we would be uh, looking at to, to, to sell those services. Michael, I look forward to chatting to you about part two of your series of essays. That's Michael Power, who's an investment strategist at 91 in Cape Town. The views and opinions expressed in these podcasts are those of Lindsay Williams and various contributors and do not reflect the policy, position or opinion of any other agency, organization, employer or company associated with strictlybusinesspodcast.com. Assumptions made on the analyses are not reflective of the position of any other entity other than the speaker or the author. And since we are critically thinking human beings, these views are always subject to change, revision and rethinking at any time. Please do not hold us to them in perpetuity.